You gotta have a podcast. 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 Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to You Gotta Have a Podcast. It's me, your host, Angela Palladino, back with another episode for you today. Hope everybody's having a great week and thank you again for tuning in. Today, I have a lovely conversation with a friend of mine from the comedy community who was formerly a scientist before becoming a science communicator and a storyteller, digital media freelancer, and comedian. That's where I met her on comedy stages in New York City, but it turns out she's done so much more than that. From scientific fieldwork in Egypt and Spain to graduate studies in the UK, she spent all over the world, and she came right back to New York City where she started with a huge story to tell along the way. Her name is Kyle Marion, and she produces and performs in shows that celebrate diverse voices. We get really deep into it, and we laugh a lot along the way. Here is my conversation with Kyle Marion. Chicken or the egg question, which came first, science or comedy? Always the egg. Um, but also, <laughs> technically, it is the egg because dinosaurs, but also, um, <laughs> it, it was science for me. Yeah. Uh, I never thought I was funny. I never thought I was creative. I like, you know, like English writing classes were torture for me because there wasn't like a clear formula or answers. And I mm-hmm. was always that kind of person growing up, you know, like I really enjoyed calculus. I really enjoyed <laughs> like being able to problem solve stuff because that felt logical. And so, yeah, growing up, I was always kind of attracted more towards like the science and the maths kind of stuff. Um, and that's what I followed sort of in in college and then grad school. So like I, I ended up doing a degree in um, anthropology, which is a social science, but mm-hmm. um, but largely because I was like, oh, I want to try archaeology because, you know, that's like a science where you can travel the world and be paid for it, right? Like an Indiana Jones. So <laughs> I was just like, I'm, I'm going to try that instead uh, and see what that's like. And that kind of led me to the trajectory of like the sciences in general. Um, yeah. That's really cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to be Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking back now, I'm just like, yes, uh, definitely want to be a white man who can't get fired from his job, even though he skips his job to go on vacation. Okay, like, yeah, that but he's sense. a renegade guy. He's, he's a, a renegade. renegade. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Also, the American dream for me, which is a white man, like yeah. that is, yeah, growing up. Definitely. I mean, it's the it's if, if you get if you get to pick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I get to pick, it's not necessarily an Asian immigrant woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, playing on easy mode would be <laughs> white man, white yeah. American man. <laughs> um, cool. So what was that experience like when you were uh pursuing the archaeological like aspects and like also also anthropology like where you're traveling a lot more and like not necessarily be because I know you've done a lot of work outside the U.S. yeah like in the UK and stuff um was did that that work um come from those first like sort of tastes into like doing sort of the more international so it's kind of interesting because if um like the the trajectory the career path to becoming sort of a professional archaeologist or paleontologist um like that has is always international and there's Mm -hmm. actually like nowadays you know 21st century looking back and people doing a lot of thinking around how colonizing that is and like Mm -hmm. that mentality in the sciences where like you know you get money from the western society or the northern hemisphere and bring it to like a developing nation but then you like take control of all of that knowledge afterwards Mm -hmm. like there there's a whole world of thinking now that's like reshifting that but yeah when I was starting out it was very much like oh yeah like this is a career path that would allow me as a Filipina immigrant Mm-hmm. To sort of go back to my roots yeah. and really understand, okay, like what was the first peopling of of the Philippines and Southeast Asia? Like how did that 
come to be? Why am I so similar to my friends who are Indonesian and our languages are so similar? Like yeah. all of those little like social things sparked that question for me growing yeah. up. Um, and ironically, to to the disappointment of my AP calculus teacher, Mr. Leung, <laughs> in high school, where he was like, you know, one day I was asking me after we got our exams, um, exam results back, and he was like, Kyle, you're amazing at calculus, and you seem to love the math stuff. What are you going to do, you know, for college? And I was like, uh, I signed up for anthropology, and he was just like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> a social science? A social science? How dare <laughs> you? <laughs> I have never felt that level of shame from a teacher before, but like, it was really funny because that also really... Sorry, Mr. Leung. <laughs> I know, sorry. I'm so sorry, Mr. Leung. Um, <laughs> but that like weirdly got me into that pathway of like, okay, as a career, I feel like this sparks my curiosity, but also helps mm-hmm. me connect back to my roots as a Filipino and like all of these questions of similarities that I see with you know my friends growing up who are Indonesian Malaysian that sort of thing um even starting with language where like you know my Indonesian friends who I played volleyball with would say things like salamat or like you know but there's like this almost the same exact words in Filipino and that sort of thing and like that helped spark that sort of momentum of asking that question of who am I how are we so similar how are people you know different but still kind of the same in so many ways and that led me to that trajectory but also in terms of choosing you know sort of deciding oh okay like I kind of want to follow this up like this idea of human evolution and you know traveling the world to understand how we became to be um that kind of really solidified my choices in college and then like applying for grad school but around that time too I was pretty lucky because like I grew up in New York City and like my mom worked at NYU and so going to college at New York University was pretty much free because Mm -hmm. of tuition or mission and that allowed me opportunities to save up my money from working to then apply to to like travel and all of that other stuff which is actually really costly like yeah there's a reason that whole world and a lot of the sciences is still largely like you have to have money behind you. You have to have kind of a well enough um, family to support you to like choose that kind of pathway. Um, like I would have had to pay $4,000 to spend one month in Egypt to learn how to excavate um, and study Egyptology. Like mm-hmm. that's just how much it was. And and like my choices of ending up working in Spain with colleagues from the American Museum of Natural History, because I happened to know the right person who helped me like get an internship there. Um, like that was an opportunity that like I chose because it was free. Yeah. And I just had to like pay for my own flight, but didn't have to like lock down $4,000 as a college student working two jobs yeah. to like be able to afford that opportunity for my career. So like there were all of these like economic layers to, to that. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, this is really hard to achieve, but also I found ways to sort of give it a try and like gain the momentum that led me to grad school. Mm-hmm. Um and actually like applying for grants that would support, you know, being a grad student and like all of that stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, so you were, you were, um, you were able to, in some small ways, like start to explore, uh, like, like, um, what's the right word? Like feel like field work essentially in undergrad. Yeah, yeah um, I was. That's and- great. Like the, I had a really big experience, like my junior, senior year where I had the opportunity where I was taking classes in forensics and like, and bone and and anthropology in that sense, like um, physical anthropology. Mm -hmm. And um, at that same time, the World Trade Center sifting project was just kind of finishing up mm-hmm. like this you know this was like years after 9-11 but yeah. New York City was still sifting through all of that debris for all that time like you know the area underneath um Dumbo like directly underneath the like that area between where the timeout uh marketplace is now you know oh, yeah. hands 
like there was a spot there before it was fully developed where it was just a massive warehouse and that was where we were sifting all of that debris and so like I had opportunities like in New York City to be able to apply some of the field knowledge without necessarily leaving um, the country and paying all that stuff and like that was what got me really into the field work part yeah like the the classes I was taking plus the practical work that I Mm -hmm. was doing to be like yeah, this feels fulfilling. I'm applying like the weird puzzling of bones that I learned in class yeah. to like helping families reconnect and like, you know, finish, you know, find find like closure with like this massive thing that happened to all of us in New York City. Yeah. 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 It does sound now maybe this comparison is not appropriate, but it does it sound like there's some similarities as far as barriers um, especially economic barriers between like uh, this type of science, like especially things that require field work and require a lot of money behind it. And also like a lot of the arts, like, oh yeah, um, right. Like, you know, yeah. y- you talk to uh, like, for example, like actors or painters, like needing grants to like do their work and like same thing with science. Yeah. I mean, vastly different. And you know, what's funny to me though, is that uh, people always say about like when it comes to the arts, like, well, you know, uh, artists get taken advantage of because they'll do it for free, yeah. you know? And oh, I yeah. feel, do you feel like it might be the same sort of mentality around some of, some of the sciences where people are just like, if you absolutely. could like just do it for free, you would. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The sciences and education. Yeah. Like, it's because it's a passionate thing, I feel. It, it is, but also people don't see the capitalist value immediately. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they don't see the monetary influence. When I'm talking to a lot of scientists these days about like, you know, founda- what we call foundational or basic science, which is like, you know, at, at first glance, it feels like uh, science for the sake of knowledge, just so we can know, put it in a textbook and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it actually like, you know, maybe would impact massive applied science stuff like, hey, the mRNA vaccines. Yeah. Like 50 years down the line, 100 years down the line. But if you're just talking to a regular person to show them that like, okay, teaching someone how to do things or like doing that kind of research matters, Mm -hmm. they assume that you should be able to do all that work for like pennies. Yeah. Right. Because they don't have that immediate value. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's like, yeah, and I agree. It's the same with the arts. It's like, yeah, you should be, it's fulfilling to you, right? Right. But (laughs) it doesn't connect with like, okay, well, how am I able to pay my bills as an artist? But like someone on the other end who's like, okay, why am I helping you pay your bills? This is just like for fun, right? Yeah. It's a totally different thing, but it is a huge barrier to like being able to succeed or if you don't have the right background mm-hmm. to actually try it out. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. I was not expecting to like sort of, I, I, I've never really thought of that before, but that like makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. There, there's no immediate visible <laughs> way that it's like you're immediately making money from, for example, anthropo- anthropological research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so what was, what, where in the in the in the uh, in the mix? Where in, in the map of of all this time were you starting to uh, start to realize the importance of like science communication? And then from that, you know how you've gotten into like the more like storytelling and and comedy elements of of how you incorporate that together. Um. So I have always really enjoyed kind of teaching and sort of facilitating conversations with groups um weirdly I had experience in high school where they were trying to you know like those leadership kinds of things where (laughs) they teach you how to like get your other classmates to talk about a topical issue and that sort of thing yeah um (laughs) like that that kind of sparked that a little bit but it's funny because like the practical side of teaching didn't really happen until grad school where like that was part of my PhD program was you right. know, I get paid, but then at the same time as doing like the studies and the research, I also had to teach. And I found that like there was a time where I was teaching human gross anatomy to first year med students, um, PAs, um, physician assistants and mm-hmm. uh, nurses, et cetera. And like 
I really enjoyed helping them not fail because I had failed that class once. Yeah. And then I was like, why am I not internalizing all of this things that I had to memorize? And, and I ended up being like the go-to tutor that like the professors would recommend me to students who were like near failing so mm-hmm. that I could help them just like actually internalize some of that knowledge. And I really enjoyed that because I felt like, you know, I was able to help them figure out how the information made sense for them. So yeah. it was like very much, you know, a one-on-one thing and I could like figure out, okay, this analogy works for you or this analogy doesn't work for you. Yeah. Um, but there were also times in field work in Spain where like we would have these open days where families from like the neighboring towns would come watch us like as if we were in a zoo and like they would watch <laughs> us like doing our thing and point at us and stuff. And we would like show them the little like stone tools or whatever that we're finding. <laughs> and there were moments there where like we would be telling them you know, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I would like, as someone who's like sort of had learned Spanish, but then don't have that in-depth knowledge was like tasked with, Hey, this is a foreigner go, you know, be our like shining guide. Cause like, that's a neat thing. Our team is international. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But then I would be met with like these elderly folks who are just like, why are you destroying the hills I grew up in? Now I can't show my kids what this hill is beautiful for. What? It's all taped off. It's all taped off. You're digging it away. The hills are disappearing. And for what? To put something in a damn museum? Yeah. And it's like that sort of thing where I was just like, oh, okay. How am I going to like help that? How am I going to fix that? Yeah. Like, how am I going to be like, yeah, this is, you know, important stuff. It helps us understand like human heritage and like, yeah. you know, what the world looked like uh, 500,000 years ago. But then to like a regular person, they're just like, no, you're digging holes. <laughs> Why does that matter? And so like that challenge is also like, okay, there, there are other things yeah. that are play with like how important it is to storytell or like how to con converse with people who you know you're in their territory you're in their land and history like mm-hmm. what does it mean to to like actually engage with them and like show them why what we're doing is also beneficial for them or or for me to understand why what I'm doing as a scientist is harmful to them like that's the other side of the coin yeah and so like that got me into sort of really trying to figure out um oh what are the opportunities here for mm-hmm. her communicating science or my research beyond just like talking to like academics that like, Oh, here are the cool stuff that I kind of did and didn't learn. Um, right. Yeah. And, and like, I had the opportunity at the, the program that I was in in grad school where they were just coming up with a training program for scientists. Um, Alan Alda like built this entire program and this is now what he does (laughs) I know this is now what he does but like he started at Stony Brook with this idea that like dang scientists suck at talking to people why this is a problem and then as an actor he's like let me teach them the ways (laughs) you know let me teach them how to improvise Uh, and and like that kind of got me started into sort of unpacking okay, what am I missing in terms of skills as a Mm -hmm. scientist? But also like, why don't I care about who I'm talking to sometimes as a scientist? Like that, that that was what got me started. Yeah, Yeah. that's interesting. Just like, just talking to you now, it does seem like um, a lot of your journey has been like driven by your like, uh, a lot of like your internal need to like understand and relate to people just wherever they might be in the world and what whatever time period they may have lived in Uh, (laughs) um and and yeah i mean communication is obviously (laughs) the first part of that (laughs) um and it's it's so interesting too because uh like you were saying all of the, the the work is important but to to like science and the world in general but it to someone 
who, for example, that hill has important memories, the hill is more important to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the memories that they make, this is what I distinctly remember from that old Spanish man who was like, <laughs> you know, the memories that I made on these hills, I can't make them with my grandchildren because mm-hmm. of you guys. And that was major. Also, like a tiny part in my head was like, okay, Spanish colonizer, you're talking about Filipino. (laughs) That feels really weird. But like, you know, like on the surface level, I was also like, I get it. Yeah, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) But we should talk about history at some point. But okay, I get it. (laughs) You know what, sir? You need to think about. (laughs) (laughs) There are layers here. Yeah. Don't have time to unpack. But yeah, yeah. layers beyond the sediment in the hills. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That is a dirt joke um, for everybody out there. Uh, (laughs) But that's really interesting, too, um, because so much of your your communication work probably is built on sort of putting yourself in other people's shoes, whether or not they're difficult shoes to put yourself in and trying to, like, Mm -hmm. understand how they think so that you can communicate clearly with them. Does that make sense? Do you feel like that's the case? Yeah. And there are times where I, as a regular human, who's also a woman of color, Mm -hmm. like, but also I'm not black. Like there are, there are times where I'm like, I do not have the bandwidth for this person to care. I need to care about them for them to care about the science, about my comedy, about anything else. And sometimes it's just understanding that, like, nah, not today. Yeah. <laughs> not today, old man. Yeah. <laughs> but but it is, it's it's a huge part of, like, I guess what drives me and mm-hmm. in my career, also what kind of snowballed into me leaving science and being like, no, I think what works better for me is to focus on the communication part. Yeah. Because there's so much wrong in the science part that I also need to sort of resolve for myself but like that that's all of those different pieces also allowed me the chance to like really sort of reckon with my own choices and like the whys of why Mm -hmm. I I was drawn to science what I was thriving in in terms of like teaching and like connecting with other people but what was also holding me back right what I thought about myself and you know like in many ways what led to a burnout for me in in like that particular career choice yeah I mean I I also I also enjoyed interacting with scientists like I I loved being in museums and like traveling different museums around the world to like see their collections and that sort of thing like that was always fun yeah but a huge part of being a scientist is so siloed too and There's a lot of structures that you have to play against, whether it's like, you know, sexism and like the the glass elevator, quote unquote, where like there's, you know, people higher up are seeing there's like more women coming into the the disciplines. And so they're kind of like inadvertently fast tracking men, cis men in that space. And like how that power dynamic and all those like internal politics really took away from like me and what Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be able to do in the sciences. And so like there are all these pieces that kind of made science for me as a career choice really like fun and like allowed me to thrive. But then there were huge parts that were systemic that like kept that from me. And I, there was just a point where I was like, I can't, I can't keep trying when I'm like going uphill with a giant ball, you yeah, know, like, with a giant rock, just trying to get things done, but like my morale was like not there, you know. Yeah, so that so that was what contributed like significantly to the burnout you, you mentioned, right? Like yeah. more of that sort of um, emotional level, not necessarily like the work itself, but everything that mm-hmm. surrounds it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I mean. Sisyphus, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pushing yeah. the boulder up the hill. Exactly. Um, so then did you, was it a hard pivot when you pivoted to more toward the communication or was it a slow, like slowly like inching over? Um, Kind of both. 
Yeah. Because I was involved with the Ellen Alda Center. Right. um, For communicating science. uh, I had external mentors who were outside of the science and academia space. Mm -hmm. Showed me that like you have a career choice. Like, you you know, you can have multiple career lives and and when you're just in the sciences and like you kind of like for me I kind of was like I'm deciding from high school onwards that this was the thing that I wanted and kept pushing forwards it's you rarely get the opportunity to meet other people who have made those career leaps and now like we know tons of people who made (laughs) those career leaps I mean we know like you know, uh, showrunners who were former, you know, finance analysts and like, like yeah. all of these like layers of, you know, total career pivots. But at the time I needed a crisis therapist to help me yeah. sort of admit to myself that like, that is a possibility. I can value myself enough to be like enough with this career because mm-hmm. it's not it's not for me and like I also had the help of external mentors to be like here are the opportunities it's totally fine it's totally normal Mm -hmm. and like now is a great time to to jump and like you're you know like have that sort of soft kind of discussion that I didn't feel safe having within the academic space yeah so like it was both it was both soft and like like sharp kind of turn yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've had a career pivot uh, in in my career as well. And it is, it, I think one of the hardest things, and maybe you relate to this, is admitting that it's okay <laughs> and mm. that all of the work that you did do was not a waste of time. It's still useful yeah. to you. But <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it's hard, especially when you're making a choice at like 18 and going to college or something. Yeah. You can't be held accountable for decisions you make at 18. No. Yeah, <laughs> Come exactly. on. <laughs> Although to be fair, I still there is one aunt where um I have not <laughs> honestly told her that I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah. She still thinks that I have a PhD and I'm like, no, I left before that. Um, but I refuse to tell her because uh she's hard to please. So yeah. she still thinks I have a PhD. So you know, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if it makes her happy and she can keep thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And honestly, especially when it comes to like mental health and, and, you know, sort of protecting yourself so that you can do your best work and be your best self, you know, it's, it sounds like it was important to, to make that pivot um, and, and still still do work that you're passionate about, but maybe in a slightly different way that's more in tune for your, your needs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did. I did find myself like asking, right. Like how often do we actually get taught how to see ourselves as like, we have transferable skills. Like that is a yeah. really, like, that's like a big term in helping people sort of shift careers and like redesign their resumes. Right. Like mm-hmm. as an academic, I never learned how to write a one page resume ever. It was always like, you got to fill those 10 pages. Like you got to, you know, like you got to write every single tiny thing you've ever done. It needs to be five pages to 10. Otherwise, ooh, shame on you. Mm -hmm. But like no one ever taught me how to see myself as having those transferable skills. Mm -hmm. And like now that, you know, I have enough years beyond like past my academic life. I keep telling people that like, hey, you know, it's really important for you to to understand that like, yeah, all of that work sifting through data, like that is massive transferable skills that can pay you way more mm-hmm. <laughs> in like the industry outside of academia if you know how to use Excel well, you know, like yeah. things like that where um, I, I wish that I had had that kind of guidance. I didn't. So yeah. around the time of my transition, I felt like my only choice was to get a student loan and take a master's somewhere that would help Mm -hmm. me sort of reformat my academic like career into my next step. I see. 
So, yeah. so you felt like you had to like, not necessarily a step backward, like take a step back to restart down. Like it's yeah. like you missed the exit. So you got to back up and like. <laughs> Pretty much. Like yeah. I needed, I needed a, a way to restart. And mm-hmm. because no matter how at the time I thought I could spin my like work experience and my degree as a scientist. Yeah. Like. I just wasn't competitive to be able to like get Nat Geo internships or like I wasn't competitive to get an actual paying um, job at a museum. Like, cause I was competing with people who knew how to write those resumes. Right. And like knew how to like had the right connections or like the right people to reference for that particular role. And I just felt like, I mean, I had years of teaching, I had years of like research, but like, I had zero idea how to translate that. And so I had to, I had to choose to um, do a master's that would help me become more of a professional science communicator. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to me because I also lean really heavily now on like those transferable skills. Like Mm -hmm. I started, especially in my like, you know, outside of comedy uh, stuff, my like, I started like as a basically in marketing and project managing And then going from that to, you know, working in the production industry, you know, producing is project managing, but it's the same skills. It's scheduling budgets, all that stuff, but communicating, especially I feel like someone like you or I might understand like, oh, it's basically the same thing. But when you're applying for those jobs, some people just see something on a resume that's a different title. Mm-hmm. And then they just like automatically are like, oh, they don't, they've never done this before. And yeah. it's so infinitely infuriating to me. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> understanding, understanding that limitation for the people reading those resumes on the other side yeah. was huge. Cause mm-hmm. it was like, right. If you're, if you're just trying to transfer careers and you're just submitting your resumes everywhere, mm-hmm. it feels like all of the no's are you. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not always the case. Like it's sometimes it's also the other person on the other side. And like, yeah. if you don't understand that, then it's hard to sort of fix what's wrong. Right. Yeah. To like adjust to the new problem. So yeah. And, and for me, like that meant a massive student loan. So yeah. <laughs> student loans. Goddamn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel your pain. Um, actually probably not as much because I don't have a master's degree, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I place so, so, so much value on education. And honestly, if I could, I would just be in grad school my entire life and never do anything else if it was free, but uh, right. I like learning things, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it is, it does feel, I'm sure like, you know, you have to like sort of take the time to go out back and do that, you know, additional degree just to pivot. What was that experience like? Um, like, did you feel like you were like, kind of like you know in the waiting room to actually get started or how did you how did you like contextualize that experience not necessarily so at the time I was like transitioning and choosing a master's the U.S. didn't have any science communications programs that would certify me um (laughs) so like I was just like yeah I mean I guess I could try museum studies but like that's not it and so I found that like Uh, there were programs in the UK and that's what led me to like working and living in the UK for a couple of years. Um, But in terms of how that felt like, it felt like eat, pray, love. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like freedom. Like I was like, oh yeah, fuck my past life. Like I can like start refresh and like Mm -hmm. really, you know, see how I can like without the pressures of people who knew me, like this is me restarting. And like that, felt freeing and it was so incredible I was also living in Edinburgh Scotland you know oh, yeah. where, like where the fringe happens every year and so yeah. like the, having those touch points also helps like the unlock that creativity and like the possibilities and the specific program that I took for my master's in in science communication and public engagement also allowed us sort of rotations with mm-hmm. different places of practice and so that meant that I can see what it's like to apply my skills and the new skills that I'm learning to say, you know, uh, policymaking and working with parliament in the UK versus yeah. like working in a museum or a tourist spot. And uh, that was really neat. And yeah. so like that, like unlocked so much 
of going from I don't know what's possible to like, no, literally anything is possible. Yeah. Anything is possible if I can figure out what their problem is, how they pay for it. And then uh-huh. I could be like, oh, this is how I see myself in that role. And so so that was actually a really like freeing experience for me because it was a chance to to just feel like I could break away from my own um, limitations that I impose on myself, but also like to feel like I can really test this out and try this out and, and see what's up. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. There's something really magical um, about when you uh, kind of like as someone who burned their past career down and then moved to New York and didn't know anyone. I was just like, I can do fucking anything. I can be anyone. No one knows who I am, what I do. So I totally relate to that. And uh, it's so funny that you were in Edinburgh. My girlfriend is originally from Edinburgh, which is there a couple of weeks ago. Um, It's a very magical place. It's a magical place. (laughs) I can't believe you were there what, around COP26. Yeah. Like yeah. The well, I was there conference. right before. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. I was there in uh, beginning of October. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, it, like being in Scotland also was what led me to comedy. Because yeah. the UK had had this program running for 10 years where they were training up scientists and academics to mm-hmm. do like humorous talks and stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, and like not necessarily stand up the way we do, like we know stand up in New York City or like the main right. stages, right? Like Comedy Central. It was more of that like British vibe of, you know, just chatting and like being funny, like mm-hmm. um, and having, you know, room to like push people to to see sort of what's funny about research and that sort of thing. So like yeah. that's what got me started. And like it actually seeing one show for this place called the um, the Bright Club in Edinburgh um, mm-hmm. at, at their venue there called the Stand. Um, like the first time I was really like, oh, I need to do this for myself um, was watching a woman who had just defended her dissertation that week, like her PhD <laughs> dissertation. God bless. And, spe- and spent eight <laughs> minutes roasting like all the people that she had to deal with just to get to a place to be like, I spent five years of my life studying this and now I have to impress you in an hour. Are you kidding me? And like just absolutely roasted the whole system. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like that's what comedy can do. I yeah. can do, I, I got shit to say. Oh my God. <laughs> like this is amazing. And like that kind of got me started on my yeah. like, how I can, how I can feel power and freedom through comedy and like also sort of unpacking a lot of like complex feelings I had about leaving science and why I left it. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like, just like making people laugh, like that was all sort of packaged with that. And that got me started on like using comedy specifically to educate. And that's yeah. Honestly, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very powerful tool. Laughter is uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can get people to bend to your will. Um, no, but to listen to <laughs> the science yeah. that you're trying to get them to listen to. <laughs> um, so, so you were in Edinburgh. You were studying. Uh, what was the, your degree in? Like, it was science communication related, right? I, yeah, I missed the uh, uh, exact. Uh, it was a science communication and public engagement. Public engagement. That's it. Which is like. It very technical kind of thing but at the end of the day it's it's just a catch-all for like how different types of people can actually care about science Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. okay I gotcha and then you're in Edinburgh you're seeing this comedy science related comedy stuff Mm -hmm. did you start yourself immediately like starting to do sort of like on stage stuff there or was that did that come later i signed up for the following month's show oh, i was nice. like because like it, you know it was yeah. a rolling program and so yeah. they were just like if you're interested come up to us after the show because mm-hmm. it was a it was a spawn like it was it had the entire program has like sponsorship money so like it has mm-hmm. funding to be able to cycle through that but I was just like, yeah, sign me up. Let me give this a try. And again, yeah. a huge part of that was like being in a new city where nobody knew me and I yeah. can be like, whatever the hell I want. So let's yeah. give this a go. Um, and they provided some like light training of just like, you know, here's some exercises you can do. Like, yeah. 
that sort of thing. And then just like, let us fly for eight to 10 minutes. Um, but that's what got me started. And then it got me thinking about like, oh, all right, what are the other ways that like, what are the other art forms that we can use to communicate yeah. science? Like, like the technical sides of it. And, you know, that that scientist brain, I couldn't, and like the logic behind like what's going on and why is it working? Like that, like really sparked that side of my brain too. And so like, that's kind of why I have a very sort of mechanical way, way of needing to parse out why my set is working or why it's not or like why it works for certain rooms and why I don't go to certain open mics but I do prefer to go to certain open yep. mics until I'm ready and yeah like that that just kind of connected naturally because like stand-up is so logical yeah it's like a huge part of it is just you unpacking your own logic in your head uh-huh right and like it and just then you're just sense. a b testing the whole like that's yeah. all it's just that's like all, all right is. this worked this worked this joke didn't work let me just tweak these three different words see if it hits yeah. if I phrase it this way oh yeah. it worked like, that way like right, <laughs> that's right. all it is or like let me find a new market for this because this is not the market yeah. For it. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah there you go you know the rooms that you just don't go to because like why what's why? the point yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um so then so did you stick around in the UK for, for a while after you finished up your program there? Or did you j- immediately? Because, I mean, we met in New York. So I know that you came back yeah. to New York at some point. <laughs> uh, spoiler, uh, I ended up in New York. Um, I mean, I had a student visa. And so that right. student visa was limited unless I was able to find a job there that would help sponsor a longer visa. But that was actually really difficult because like the job market in the UK and especially in Edinburgh was really small mm-hmm. for what I was trying to do. And like you, I was up against people who had massive connections, right. Or like yeah. had been, and also know the sort of culture of how to write a resume and stuff. And like, that was something I learned from my, one of my good friends who works in HR in the UK and he was like, and he'd lived in the U.S. too and worked different in HR. <laughs> different resumes, but also the cover letters. Like, what, the thing that he told me was like, oh, what was it? Oh, he was like, in the U.S., you have to sort of brag about your accomplishments, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of the vibe. Whereas in yeah. the U.K., don't you dare brag. You better tell us. You, it better be self-deprecating enough. Yeah. Where you're like, I achieved some <laughs> stuff, but like, I can also grow and like, can you help me? But also like, I would be perfect for it. Like, it was just like such a different vibe that I was not even two years into like living there was like, no, I'm too much of a New Yorker. Are you kidding me? Like, I know. Honestly, <laughs> someone's for being a like, job? <laughs> yeah. Don't you dare brag is the most British fucking thing I've ever Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that dare. needs its own like transition like oh, it God. needs its own like workshop for, for, <laughs> for jobs there because yeah 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 I mean oh what a what a mess um so so that so after your student visa um finished up and you you have all you have you got this degree now you've you've su- successfully like beep 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 backed up and now gone off a different exit <laughs> yeah um and now you're also doing you know you're performing and you're getting more into how comedy and other art forms can help with science communication so when you land back in in new york city where did you sort of start down that path did you have to reckon with the ghosts of your past a little bit or were you kind of free to to just start um, I was, over. I've been able to avoid it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I've been able to avoid reckoning with my past for a long time. And I think it's not until like my job now where mm-hmm. people are sort of like, I am coming, I'm crossing paths with people that I was in grad school with and that sort of thing. Cause like I work in science radio. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, we, I've had, we've had guests on our shows where like, Oh snap, that's like my former classmate. Hey, but also mm-hmm. I totally ghosted you when I left grad school. So like totally fine if you don't want to talk, but congratulations. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, but I think um I am at a place now where I have shown enough proof of my own concept and yeah. I'm more open about talking about my mental health issues and like mm-hmm. the systemic issues that I was up against that I just felt like wasn't working for me. And I have enough validation from people from my past program to be like, yeah, it was really messed up. Like what we had to go through just mm-hmm. to, to thrive 
it's weird. So like I have had in like somewhat of a closure, but that took a long time to get to. And so just before that, a lot of it was just like, I found a great job with an organization that was doing really, uh, really interesting things with engaging audiences with science. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of that was like being in music festivals, doing like random experiential pop-ups in New York City about like science and, you know, me being able to randomly produce a show about dating and the science of dating and Mm -hmm. like, you know, like things like that, where I was like, yeah, I'm still exploring the possibilities, but I'm also asking the question of like, what does it mean to, to like really connect with the culture and, and like connect the science and like parallel to that is also me creatively doing for myself, like what uh, a comedy show can be where like our mm-hmm. main drive is just, you know, to unpack learning or like to unpack the history of why we think a certain way and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So like, that's what um, I did, you know, for two years at Caveat, the theater in New York City, like I was doing the symposium academic standup and like a huge part of that was just like this proof of concept that I can make people laugh, but like the sets that people were doing all kind of like talked about one thematic thing, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, like uh, whether it's um, how sex and gender is so messed up in society or like yeah. whether it's like museums are not actually like neutral spaces. They can be harmful to people of color and like indigenous folks, like right. all of these like big thematic things that like I felt, you know, comedy had a power to be able to like really satirize or like really point Mm -hmm. you know a a finger to and like really like challenge people to rethink about it like Mm -hmm. that allowed me that process so like that was sort of just for me but like on the work side I was able to like see what it was like to bring science pop-ups to an EDM festival where people (laughs) were like walking around very high and they're like hey, you know, the science of psychedelics, let's talk about it and like <laughs> actually connect with them, you know? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have it's, done some very strange like, things. But also yeah, let me things. tell you about the chemicals wandering around your brain right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Like the, the number of people I've met who are like, oh, you know, I microdose and I take notes and I'm like, dude, that is science. You know I mean? <laughs> like, like that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, and, and yeah, it is really interesting. I, I'm a very big believer, um, in the, in that sort of thing that you were talking about, how, like, it really, just because it's, uh, I guess serious is the wrong word, but just because it's, you know, I guess serious, it doesn't mean it can't be funny. Like, yes. you know, yes. and I, uh, I'm, I'm working on a project myself right now that is, um, I'm developing a, a sort of travel and culture show that is, I also want it to be funny. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm creating this treatment and brief for it. And I'm using like geopolitical and like all these words. And I'm like, literally typing like, just because I use the word geopolitical doesn't mean it's not going to be funny. Like right, right, <laughs> People yeah, don't yeah. want to laugh when they hear that word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's really, I think like we need people doing work like what you're doing to sort of like, I feel like people are just sometimes like just don't want to laugh when they hear like technical terms. And yeah, I think that there's a right way to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think it, it's, it's funny to me because like, you know, that word jargon gets thrown around a lot and mm-hmm. a lot of people are hate it. And like, sometimes I'm just like, okay, but me using gen gen x gen z lingo you know like gen x lingo versus gen z lingo are mm-hmm. like jargon to each other you yeah. know what i mean and so like if i'm talking about swag and bling and stuff like that where like i have to explain that to somebody else who's older or like yeah. the reverse like that's all kind of the same but i think like for me all of the work that i have done like kind of showed me that a huge part of that is like really respecting those cultures yeah. And like, what are the words that make sense for those cultures? And then like in our comedy, a huge part of that was like really learning that the times where I thought something was funny, but really dark, but wasn't working in a room was a signal for me to keep working on it. Yeah. Because like, I knew there was something really like, you know, powerful, satirizing, 
hilarious about that and it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. but that meant I had to do the harder work yeah to get people comfortable and safe enough so that oh, yeah. I could push that boundary you know what I mean yeah I yeah. completely understand that yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean I am I, um, a lot of my stand-up was <laughs> when I, whenever I first start writing a joke a lot of my jokes are a bit dark and then I'm like oh you guys hate that oh okay yeah, Great. yeah. <laughs> are we, oh you're crying yeah oh I'm no like, oh. okay Okay. I don't know how many times like on stage a- I've been like, I'm laughing. You can laugh. I'm you laughing. Laugh. And this is about me. So like, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, it's interesting that you, you bring up that sort of jargon uh, thing, because like, I know, were you, were you involved in the Code Switch show? Yeah. Too? Yes. So and that like, was something that like, um, right. Lou uh was our mentor for that brought mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people together but the yeah. shows themselves that were outside of UCB at the time I produced those shows because right, like, they were a caveat weren't they they were a caveat yeah. and so I I led the production of those shows because no one at UCB knows how to market anything <laughs> <laughs> so it was just like you know right, say. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah okay. um and so like I I was like okay well if I know that there's going to be an audience for this. So let me take the reins. And like a huge part of that was also pushing our team to be like, okay, wh- where's the, how do we tighten this up? So there's like a value to the audience that are coming in. So yeah. yeah. So I ended up leading those shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds like now I've seen, I saw a couple of those shows when they were running and obviously I understand the concept behind it, but it sounds like there's also like, that is obviously like, code switching among race and culture but then we're also talking when you're talking about the jargon between like scientists and not scientists it's almost like you have to some sort of code switching yeah. to actually make it understandable what do you think how do you see that yeah i mean they're they're parallel yeah and i think people of color definitely understand just how much they have to white speak totally to be heard in mm-hmm. academic spaces or like you know, uh, yeah, just like how much we sort of have to, in order to achieve our end goal, understand mm-hmm. how we have to sort of push ourselves back and forth or even get to a place where like we can finally be ourselves and what that means. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's all I think I, I've found in my experience that that's all kind of tied together. Yeah. But code switching is very much like the idea for me of marginalized folks having to play the field, right? Like mm-hmm. that's like a huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I think it definitely gives an, a unique perspective for uh, anyone who's marginalized uh, in, in, for example, a gated field, like the sciences already having to like do that code switching but like double time because it's yeah. like science communication too. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it's really, really interesting layered stuff. Um, in, in, so when you were, when you were working on the, the science uh, symposium show and then also all the other comedy stuff that you were doing, what was the response like immediately, like there was such a need and you were filling a space or did you find that it was like you had to build mm. things slowly? What was that experience like? Um, I had great advice from my friends who started the, uh, Bright Club in the UK. Mm-hmm. And one of the advice was like, you know, you know, your value, understand mm-hmm. how much time you might need to get that buy-in. Yeah. And so, you know, I knew the owner of Caveat before Caveat was built because mm-hmm. we were working in the same circles of science communication, Ben Lilly. Yeah. And so, you know, I had his ear to be able to pitch a concept that had, you know, like proof of concept already outside of the U.S. And I was like, okay, but to realistically do this in a city where there's no understanding what this market can look like. Mm -hmm. Also, you're just starting out as a space that was originally going to be like, you know, entertainment for like, like smart thinking entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, I need the learning space. So I have a structure. I know who I want to bring to the table. I also know that I need to find those people or train them up. So like I was finding people who I thought had something to say with their comedy and inviting them to like do somatic shows. But then I was also trying to reach out to like academic spaces to like see if I could train up people and like give them that professional development training. Yeah. So I knew that I needed the time to develop. 
because mm. I needed the time to develop the process as a producer. But then I was also as a marketer, I knew that I needed the time to get that branding and the messaging right so people can find me. Yeah. And so that meant that there I, I specifically told Ben, you know, give me two years to develop. And I know you're working with a lot of different things, but you're also as a new theater that had a very specific mission. You're also coming up with that challenge. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, because we knew each other, I had that opportunity to sort of design that. But I yeah. was one of the original like external programs that um, Caveat did. And like I was there for their opening or, and their soft openings and mm-hmm. And like up until the pandemic, you know, started like March 1st, like that, you know, that was something that I was bringing to the table. And so um, I I baked that into the process. Yeah. Because I'd I'd had enough experience as a producer to know, okay, here are all the variables that like I still need to figure out and how much time this will take in a big city that already had a massive market for comedy. Like I need that time. It's really smart um, and so important because a lot of times uh, uh, other venues might be like, oh, well, your first show just didn't really, you know, draw a a sold out crowd. So you're out. It's like, well, okay, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And like learning, you know, also being open enough to understand like the venue's needs. Right. Like there are times where I'm like, I'm not going to take a weekend show. There's no way because like you need that to pay your bills. So let me find like a Thursday, let me find a Wednesday and see yeah. what I can do there. Um, but yeah, like, I think, you know, the, the experience producing for somebody else or like the experience kind of learning through my day job, what it meant to like market something that was like totally mm-hmm. unheard of for a new audience, like help me make that pitch to caveat and Ben Lilly. Yeah. Very cool. And, and um, so throughout the pandemic, science communication <laughs> has become like a huge VIP front of mind, important thing in the last two years, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what are what are your thoughts on that? And in, in specifically as it relates to to your work um, with, you know, funny comedy science comms? <laughs> The pandemic really changed a lot of things. I think, yeah, like March 1st, Esther Chen and I, like, you know, decided we threw a show about Asian racism, anti Asian racism, and mm-hmm. um, coronavirus before the virus was even like really confirmed to be in the New York, right? Yeah. And like, we didn't foresee that show to necessarily sell out, but like how uncomfortable, but also exciting it was to have caveat filled with 140 people. Yeah. <laughs> for like the very last live show of, yeah. of caveat during that time. But also like for <laughs> me to show proof of concept of the power of comedy yeah. to both like laugh and highlight, you know, what anti-Asian racism looks like. Yeah. And also educate people about this incoming fear. And so it was really exciting to sort of do that. However, at the same time, it was also like this pressing need to spotlight science and understanding as a producer, this is only, and a marketer, that this is only happening now because everyone knows and can see and can feel the urgency. Yeah. But that is fleeting. Because right. so many of the avenues to connect about this thing, you know, it, once people were saturated with like the worries, like the, you know, caring about like how to wash your hands, then that goes back to the back burner, right? Like that's right. not front of mind anymore. And I saw that and I see that now in terms of, you know, like how people either follow science news or like talk about research like people are so tired of covid um new stuff but at the same time it's still a problem because misinformation is huge in social media like people still don't necessarily know what is a trustable resource or like what it means to like like no one's ever gonna really learn how to read a preprint paper about the recent like you know vaccine research yeah no no one has time for that but at the same time people haven't necessarily honed in on like who's the right people to like follow so I can unpack that 
because like Joe Rogan is still the main oh God. person for so many people and he just spouts really terrible things right really, really and like you can't stupid <laughs> yeah and you can't control that like that no. you know yeah. like so I think uh yes for sure there's been like a really great uh boost for what science influencers can be like uh, mm-hmm. on social media and like people's connections to science and you know there's research that has shown that you know trust in science is still strong but it's not necessarily the same kind of like lifelong connection because you're still fighting against you know the the misinformation people of the world and like yeah. just how democratized information is now on social media right so yeah. so i think there's still a lot of work there but like this past 2 years has only been a tiny experiment if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting how all those factors contribute to, to and, and what a prescient, very, just like incredible to think of you all with that very specific show that you had on that, that exact date in, oh God, in New York like, City. Like the, the time that like, I think it was like an afternoon, our show started at four, people started piling in. It was amazing. We had March like a ton of, was the, the first, the first case one in New York. In New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I as remember. soon as we got out, as soon as we got out of the venue, I think around eight o'clock, I opened, you know, my, my socials and it was like Rochester man confirmed and we're just like, oh, no, please don't be Asian. <laughs> like, that was the reaction that we had coming out of the thing. And it was just like, God. OK, yeah. <laughs> the timing is just mind boggling of all yeah. of that. And wow. I mean, it's definitely for everything that you do um, and specifically your perspective, being who you are and doing what you do. Uh, I can't imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I just so so I guess my final just thought was just um so like what what is what do you think like kind of what's the deal now? Like what is your focus mm. now? What are you most uh driven to be working on? Um I think like you I've been working a lot on trying to write more mm-hmm. during the pandemic yeah. and I actually had a massive like loss of inspiration because I found out that for myself, a huge part of this process of like seeing how I can insert science into random comedy bits and conversation was interacting with people. Yeah. And during the lockdown, that was impossible. And then, you know, the phases where we were trying to test out how comfortable we are outside, like I got mm-hmm. copied at a bad comedy show. I'm still pissed about it. And like, like I could have gotten copied at any other show. It was my first time leaving the house. To oh, like man. go support a fundraiser. It was such a bad show that had like racist comedians and oh, sexist God. comedians. And I'm just like, and I got COVID. And that was for me a catalyst for being like, <sighs> no, Kyle, I need to focus back on my voice. I need to focus back on my comedy. Cause mm-hmm. like, if this is what's left behind <laughs> you know what I mean? after yeah. like the pandemic exodus of New York to LA. It's like, the cockroach you know? effect, right? Like oh my the God, last yes. thing after the nuclear blast will be <laughs> yeah. the cockroaches. <laughs> exactly. And like that was what the comedy scene felt like when I came back. And that said, there were a lot of great people doing outdoor comedy, right? Like in yeah. the parks, but that also meant that the people who were willing to stick around were not the best ones, you know, yeah. like not in our eyes anyway. And so I think that was a catalyst for me to be like, all right, let's really focus on writing. Um, when I got fully vaccinated and felt like people were finally checking uh, vaccine cards when they were being together, mm-hmm. I felt comfortable enough to sign up again for, you know, a, a stand-up class. I'd never taken like a proper stand-up class, but I wanted the yeah. energy of people in a room that I miss so much. And now that's like, you know, kind of unlocked, you know, sort of a new set for me that I feel really proud of. Like I can visualize what a 30 minute, you know, a mm-hmm. uh, new show for me could be like with yeah. those, you know, characters and stuff and how I can insert the the science in there. And so like, I am in a space now where I'm not producing as much right now, but I'm investing in my own voice and like what I can write. I'm I'm testing out writing 
uh, like lear I'm learning how to write a TV pilot so that I could turn, you know, all my jokes about the clitoris into like <laughs> a show and like, you know, like just testing out what I can do with comedy as an art form, like yeah. through sketches or through like characters and stand up. So I think that's where my focus is right now is yeah. myself and my art. That's um, great. And then like, I think next year I'll bring back like other production. So yeah. yeah. That's great. I mean, yes. I mean, especially now everything is so sort of amorphous and we still sort of have to be a bit uh, not 100% out there. You know, we're yeah. still not 100% back. Um, it's the time to do it, to focus on the inner self. The inner self. <laughs> feed, our, feed, feed our inner artist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you again, Kyle, so much for joining me on today's episode. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And I really learned so much about you and science communication and that industry and how it relates to comedy and storytelling and digital media and everything that I already dabble in that isn't involved in science. <laughs> if you'd like to follow Kyle, you can find her on Instagram at Kyle Marion or on Twitter at Kyle Marion. And I'll have links to her profiles in the show notes for today's episode. As for me... I'm Angela Palladino. I've always been Angela Palladino. And next week, I will still be Angela Palladino back with another episode for you of You Gotta Have a Podcast, the season of The Swerve. You can follow me on Instagram at Ange.pal or on Twitter at AngePal or just Google me. I'm out there. You can find me or don't. Realistically, if you're listening to this, you probably already know me. Listen, I know my audience. Thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate it. If you're enjoying this season and all the episodes I've been putting together for you, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. I'd really appreciate it. It would help me a ton. Thank you again for listening. And until next week, I'll talk to you.